On several occasions when I have been in Israel, I have taken our group into the ancient city of Nazareth. In Jesus' day, it was just a tiny, insignificant village. It was an obscure town with a lowly reputation. Remember the statement in John 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The town is never even mentioned in Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament. But today, primarily because of the events around the virgin conception and life of Jesus, the town has grown into quite a large city in the state of Israel. I've taken a few groups, not all, but a few of our groups, into the heart of the city to a special place But you would never know you were in the heart of the city. The reason I say that is because right in the middle of Nazareth, there is a group of Arab believers who have created a site called the Nazareth Village. It's a fabulous place to visit because they have recreated the look and the feel of what Nazareth was like in the first century during the time of our Lord. There are little fields with sheep and goats and a shepherd. There is a cistern and a threshing floor and a wine press and a carpenter's shop and a synagogue and many other elements of life as it was during the time of Jesus. It really helps you picture what life was like when our Lord was growing up as a boy. I can remember the very first time I went to Nazareth many years ago. Our instructor took us out to the edge of the hill upon which Nazareth was built And we rehearsed the story of Jesus returning to his own hometown. His reception wasn't a welcomed one, to say the least, as we'll see a little later in the message. More than once, actually, the people of Nazareth rejected our Lord. We're going to look at the final rejection in our text this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 6. And please follow along as I read verses 1 through 6, which will form our text of consideration this morning. We read in verse 1 that he went out from there and came to his own country, his own place, his own town. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. When it comes to those who are public speakers of some kind, it has been said that the only difference between a big shot and a little shot is the distance from which you come to speak. In other words, if you are from somewhere else and it's a long ways away, then you're a big shot. If you are from someplace nearby, you're a little shot. Surprisingly, there is often a lot of truth in that saying. 
In fact, because that is so common, because that is the tendency, the, the perspective, there is another saying or phrase that has been coined. It is the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. That is exactly what we see in this passage before us. Because the people of Nazareth were so familiar with Jesus as a baby and as a boy and as a young man, they concluded that there was no way he could be anything special. Thus they rejected him, despite the works and the wisdom they beheld. As I mentioned a moment ago, this wasn't the first time the people of Nazareth had done this. Actually, their first rejection of Jesus was even much more violent. Turn with me to Luke 4, and I'll show you what I mean. The very next book of the Bible, Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> we'll pick it up in verse 16. Dr. Luke tells us, So Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. By the way, this event here was very early in the ministry of Jesus, in contrast with the one we're going to look at in Mark 6, which was much later in the ministry of Jesus, possibly even two years later. Near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, According to this text by Dr. Luke, Jesus went to his hometown where he had been raised. He went back home. Verse 17 says, And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is, was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Beloved, you cannot imagine the gasp that would have gone through the crowd. The shock. They knew this was a messianic passage. They knew this text predicted the coming of and ministry of God's chosen Messiah. So when Jesus claimed to be the one of whom this passage spoke, it was inconceivable to the people of his own hometown. Utterly shocking. Unimaginable for them. Verse 22, So all bore witness to him and marveled, and they were amazed, they were shocked at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? In other words, there's no way this guy is the Messiah. Can't be. He's no big shot. He's from right here in our podunk village. And we know who his father is. What a ridiculous claim for him to make. In response to their rejection, Jesus warned them, that they were cutting themselves off from his ministry and that he would go to others. Verse 23, he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. What are we, whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. 
But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now what is Jesus saying here? What is his point? Jesus used two examples of Gentiles who lived during a time of Israel's unbelief, and those two Gentiles received God's gracious blessings instead of the Jews. So this was Jesus' way of saying, because of your unbelief, you will end up cutting yourselves off from God's gracious blessings through me, and instead I will go to the Gentiles. They will receive blessings through me and my ministry. And let me tell you, the people of Nazareth clearly understood what Jesus was saying, and it infuriated them. Verse 28 tells us, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. They were going to kill him. That's how furious they were. So Jesus left there, and he moved the headquarters of his ministry to Capernaum. And he didn't go to Nazareth again, his hometown. He didn't go back home again until the time of which we read in our text in Mark chapter 6. Now let's go back to Mark chapter 6 and we'll see his return for the second time. Mark chapter 6. So Jesus returns to Nazareth for one final visit. In essence, he's giving the people one last chance to open their hearts and minds to him and to his ministry. But tragically, the response is almost the exact same as it was the first time Jesus went there to minister. Notice how Mark describes it. He says in verse 1, Then Jesus went out from there and came to his own country. That's a reference to his own hometown, to Nazareth. You could paraphrase it by saying, He came back home to Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. So the phrase, his own country, we know from doing the parallel over to Matthew 13, that phrase is a reference to Nazareth, where Jesus had been raised and lived until age 30. So Jesus went back home again, despite the fact that the previous time they tried to kill him, they tried to push him off the cliff, end his life, end his ministry, he went back home. And his disciples were with him this time. Verse 2 tells us, And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? It is fascinating to note that they didn't deny the fact that Jesus was speaking with unusual wisdom, and he was acting with unusual power. They didn't deny that at all. Instead, they asked where Jesus got this unusual wisdom and power. But don't be confused. They didn't really want to know. 
This wasn't a sincere question looking for a legitimate answer. This was a question of unbelief and rejection. That, co- that becomes clear as the text unfolds. They were saying something to the effect, we know who this guy is. So how did he conjure up this ability to speak this way and do these things? There's something fishy going on here. This guy is trying to pull one over on us. That's basically what they were saying, and it comes out clearly in the verses that follow. They weren't asking an honest question. They were voicing their opposition and rejection. They saw and heard the evidence, but they weren't about to let it take them where it should have taken them in their beliefs or their perspective of Jesus. It should have convinced them that he was the Messiah, who he claimed to be, and that his claims were true. But they weren't about to go there in their thinking. They were not about to go there. They were completely unwilling. Verse 3 tells us that they continued voicing their opposition by saying, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. You see what they're doing in the first part of this verse? They're naming the family members of Jesus. Joseph was his father. Not his biological father, but his legal father and relational father. Mary was his mother. Not the mother of his deity, but the mother of his humanity. Jesus did not receive his deity from Mary. It is blasphemous to call Mary the mother of God. She's not the mother of God. She's the mother of Jesus' humanity. He was already God from eternity past. But at a point in time, he became human, and Mary was the one chosen by God to be his biological mother. She was a virgin when she conceived him, and she was a virgin when he was born. But afterwards, she and Joseph came together as husband and wife and had other children. We don't know exactly how many they had, but we do know, according to these verses, there were at least six. The four sons, the four other sons, are named in this verse, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. These were actual siblings, half-brothers of Jesus. In addition, Jesus had at least two sisters. We know that because the verse uses the plural term sisters. So it's at least two. So it's clear that Joseph and Mary had other children after Jesus, and this, these would have been the half-brothers and half-sisters of Jesus, although the people of society would not have known that they were only half-brothers and half-sisters. They were clearly the brothers and sisters of Jesus and not cousins or Joseph's sons from a previous marriage, as some people have tried to suggest down through the centuries. It's amazing that people try to get around this clear fact of history in Scripture. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She and Joseph had several other children after Jesus. And you get the sense that the Holy Spirit, knowing what would eventually happen within Christendom regarding Mary, attempted to counter it in advance in Scripture by making sure that all four gospel writers say something about Mary's other children. All four. They are mentioned in all the gospels. Here in chapter 6, also in Matthew 13, Luke 8, 19 through 21, and John 7, 3 through 5. Anyone who is willing to let Scripture say what it says will have to admit that Joseph and Mary had other children. 
Most people back then probably assume that Jesus was also the biological child of both Joseph and Mary, which, was, which actually wasn't the case because of the virgin birth. But that's what the people thought, as we see here in these verses. They knew this man. They knew his family. They knew his dad and his mom and his brothers and his sisters. His dad was merely a carpenter. His mom wasn't anything special. And his brothers weren't anything special. And his sisters weren't anything special. So he isn't anything special. That's what they concluded. He's just a carpenter himself, not the Messiah, as he's claiming to be. That was the opinion held by the people of Jesus' hometown. And it comes out in that last phrase there in verse 3. It says, so they were offended at him. The residents of Nazareth were deeply offended at Jesus posturing himself as some great teacher because of his ordinary background, his limited formal education, and his lack of an officially sanctioned religious position. They were offended at him. The word offended is an interesting word in the original language. It is actually the Greek word skandalizo, from which we get our English word scandal or scandalize. For Jesus to give the impression that he was an authoritative teacher of Scripture was in the opinion of his neighbors scandalous. It was an outrage. The people were in shock. They were furious. They were angered by the audacity of this man to come back to his hometown and teach in their synagogue as if he knew more than they knew. When I did some research on this particular Greek word, I discovered that one of its meanings is to reject. That's basically what the people did. They rejected him. They were in shock, outraged, angry, just like the first time he visited the synagogue and claimed to be the Messiah. That time, as we saw, they actually tried to push him out of the synagogue and off the nearby cliff. This time they didn't go that far. Maybe because he only taught them without coming right out and claiming to be the Messiah. But the bottom line is, they rejected him. Completely rejected him. Their familiarity with him bred a contempt. He was no big shot. He was just a little shot. In fact, when they referred to him as the son of Mary in this verse, it is likely that they were implying that he was an illegitimate child. They didn't believe in the virgin conception, the virgin birth of Jesus. They knew this little girl, Mary. They knew her as a little girl, and as she grew uh, toward womanhood, they knew she wasn't married when she was with child. This was a small village. Everybody knew everything. They thought Jesus was an illegitimate son, maybe the product of marrying a Roman soldier or marrying a Greek merchant. That's what the people of Nazareth thought about Jesus. They rejected him. So he addressed their unbelief in the next verse, verse 4. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. In other words, there were many people throughout the land of Israel and the region who had come to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. There were many. But the people in his own hometown refused to see it because of their familiarity with him. 
In fact, there was an extended period of time when some of his own family members didn't even believe in him. Turn over to John 7. Let me show you what I mean. Go past Luke, the next gospel, to John chapter 7. Verse 2. Notice John's statement about the brothers of Jesus at this point in his ministry. Verse 2, John 7. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea. Judea, by the way, is where Jerusalem is located. So they're saying, Listen, this big feast is coming up. It's a big holiday. Why don't you go to the capital? Go to where it's all happening. Go to Jerusalem. Go to the feast there. Go to this big holiday celebration. Go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. It's difficult to know for sure what their motive was when they said this. Verse 5, which we haven't read yet, clearly tells us that they were not believers at this point. Therefore, some commentators, some Bible teachers like Charles Swindoll and Josh McDowell see this statement by the brothers as sarcastic. And that's possible. That's one way to take this. These brothers may have been saying, Jesus, why don't you go to Jerusalem and do your thing? Stop embarrassing us here in our own hometown. Stop claiming to be the Messiah here in Nazareth. Go down to Jerusalem. That's where people make those kinds of claims. That's one possible way to read it. Or they may have been wavering back and forth in their view of their brother Jesus. So they may have been, in a sense, asking for more evidence. Hey, if you're who you claim to be, Jesus, go to Jerusalem, Feast of Tabernacles, do some amazing things there, show us, show us really who you are so we can see. That's another possibility. Or they may have just been encouraging Jesus to show off his power So he would be made king, hoping that they would reap some of the benefits as his brothers. Hey, you know what? If this guy becomes king, we're we're, we're relatives. We're brothers. We're on the inside. No one can be certain as to what their motives were in making this comment. But in light of verse 5, we know their motives weren't pure. They wanted Jesus to go to Jerusalem to do some more miracles. They couldn't see how he could impact the nation or be who he claimed to be by spending so much time in obscurity with just a few disciples. And then John adds this footnote in verse 5. He says, For, this is an editorial comment by John as he writes the gospel, For even his brothers did not believe in him. Even his brothers did not believe in him. Can you imagine that? I mean... How can you live with someone perfect, who's perfect, and not believe he's who he claimed to be? This brings out an important principle we need to understand, and that is the fact that exposure to Jesus does not guarantee faith. Exposure to Jesus doesn't guarantee faith. Just because you were raised in a Christian home or raised in the church doesn't mean you have a pure, genuine faith. In fact, the opposite is often true. Familiarity breeds contempt in many cases. Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. The good part of the story is that eventually they did. According to 1 Corinthians 15, 7, It seems that James came to believe 
when Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. James later became one of the pastors of the Jerusalem church, and he wrote the New Testament book bearing his name. It's over near the end of the New Testament. We call it the Epistle of James. Jude also eventually believed, and he too wrote the New Testament book bearing his name, second to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Jude. But at this point, John 7, none of Jesus' brothers believed in him. Now back to our text in Mark 6. Even though Jesus was received by many throughout the nation of Israel, his own hometown people and some of his own family members didn't believe in him. That's what he means by this proverbial statement here in verse 4. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Jesus referred to himself as a prophet because that was one of his roles. He was a prophet. He wasn't merely a prophet, but he was a prophet. All the way back in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses had promised the coming of the ultimate prophet when he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. That is clearly a reference to the Messiah. Deuteronomy 18.15 is clearly a messianic prediction. So Jesus was not only a prophet, he was the prophet. The prophet of Deuteronomy 18.15. He was God's mouthpiece, God's messenger, God's spokesman. In Matthew 21.11, he is called Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. In Luke 24.19, he is called Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. In John 6.14, he is called the prophet who is to come into the world, Jesus was the ultimate prophet. As the prophet, he represented God to the people and he spoke for God. And many people recognized him as a prophet, as such. For example, in Luke chapter 7, when Jesus had raised a young man from the dead, verse 16 tells us the response. Luke seven sixteen says, Then fear came upon them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet! has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. John seven forty says, On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Not just a prophet. Surely this man is the prophet. The one all the way back from Deuteronomy 18. So you see, many people in society, society honor Jesus as the prophet. But this prophet was without honor in his own country. He was without honor in his own house, among his own hometown folks. Verse 5 records the tragic consequences. Verse 5, Mark tells us, Now he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. You see, they cut themselves off they cut themselves off from the blessings they could have received through him, just as Jesus had said to them on his first visit recorded in Luke 4. You remember that? He gave those two examples of Gentiles who did receive God's blessing when Israel in their unbelief didn't receive it. And he used those examples to say to the people of Nazareth, this is what's going to happen to you. You are going to miss the blessings and they're going to be given to others. 
Since they didn't believe in him, they wouldn't come to him for healing or miracles the way people did in their own communities. So they disregarded him to their own detriment. Isn't that sad? Think about that. They disregarded him to their own detriment. Just think of all they missed out on because of their unbelief. Think of all they missed because of their rejection of him. Jesus had already proven that he could raise the dead, deliver from demonic control, restore useless limbs, and transform people's hearts from darkness to light. He'd already done that. He'd been doing that for two years by this point, maybe longer. But the people of Nazareth excluded themselves from those blessings by their rejection of their Messiah, who was from their very own hometown. It's one of the amazing ironies of, of, of Scripture. It's not that their unbelief somehow limited Jesus' power. But we know from other passages that one of the primary purposes of Jesus' miracles was, get to, was to give people evidence to believe in him. And since these people had already made up their minds that they weren't going to believe in him, and in fact they were going to reject him, since they had already determined that, there was no reason for Jesus to give them more evidence. It was a done deal by this point. They made their decision. Furthermore, think about it this way. If Jesus had done lots of miracles and given them more evidence, it would have only increased their accountability and judgment and resulted in even greater condemnation. So if you look at it that way, it was actually merciful of Jesus not to do a bunch of miracles in the face of their already hardened unbelief. It was merciful. It would only add to the severity of their judgment. Verse 6 adds an interesting footnote to this story. First part of verse 6 says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. Isn't that a fascinating statement to ponder? He marveled. They were in shock that Jesus made the claims he made. He was in shock that they rejected him. This, this statement reflects the reality of Jesus' humanity. Jesus was amazed that they would reject him, especially since they had admitted that he had unusual wisdom and unusual power. Jesus, remember, in his humanity, most of the time lived like a man, functioned like a man. We often think, well, Jesus knew everything. Well, he had the potential to know everything in his omniscience, but he didn't always use his omniscience in his humanity. It, it almost reads, this one almost reads as if this one caught him off guard. He was amazed. He marveled because of their unbelief. Sort of like how we say, I can't believe that. I can't believe that they won't believe. What hard-heartedness. It was even astonishing to Jesus. As a result of this rejection, Jesus left. And he taught in other villages. The end of verse 6 says, Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. We don't have record that Jesus ever went back home again. He didn't go back to his own hometown. He did so early in his ministry, near the beginning. They tried to kill him. He did so much later in his ministry. Here's another chance. Here's another opportunity. And no, they're not interested. And as far as we know, he never went back. That was it. What caused the people of Nazareth to be so 
hard-hearted. One word. Familiarity. They were so familiar with Jesus that He wasn't special to them. They knew all about Him. They knew everything there was to know. At least that's what they assumed in their familiarity. Beloved, let this be a warning to us. Please hear this. It may sound shocking to hear this, but one of the worst curses of being in and around church a lot is the tendency of our hearts to grow dull and hard because of familiarity. It should be that the more we are around the Lord and the more we are around His Word and the more we are around His truth, then the more our hearts should become tender and sensitive. But sadly, that's often not the case. It often goes the other way. The more exposure we have to the things of God, the more we tend to turn it off. The more we tend to tune it out. Surely you know what I'm talking about. Surely you have seen that tendency in your own life. The problem is not overexposure, by the way. The problem is not overexposure. The problem is the dullness of our hearts. That's exactly what happened with the people of Nazareth. Their constant exposure to Jesus for all of those years growing up. I mean, he stayed there till he was 30 years old before he launched out into his public ministry. He was there for a long time. They saw him. They, they knew him. Their constant exposure to Jesus resulted in them taking him lightly. They just took him for granted. While other people in the nation were in awe of him. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Be warned. Be warned. Especially, especially if you know a lot about Jesus and have heard a lot about Jesus and you've been around him and his word for a long period of time. Guard your heart. Hebrews 3.13 talks about being hardened. Here's the exact quote. Hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is so deceitful, so tricky, so crafty. And of course, the verse is sort of personifying sin there, giving it personification. But it is so deceitful that we sometimes don't even see that our hearts are growing harder. So examine your heart today. I urge you, examine your heart today. Ask the Spirit of God to penetrate your heart. Don't, don't allow your familiarity to breed a contempt or to just take the Lord and His truth for granted. If you are here without a relationship of commitment to Jesus Christ, I urge you not to put that off. Listen to me. Your exposure to Him without yielding your life to Him can result in your heart growing harder and harder and harder and maybe impenetrable. Give your life to Jesus Christ today before you reach the point of no return. That's not a threat. 
but it is a warning. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As we bow together in closing this morning, would you please do what I was just exhorting all of us to do? To examine your heart? To ask the Spirit of God to examine your heart? Especially if you... If you've known the Lord for a long time or you've been around the Lord and His Word for a long time, look and see. Is your heart getting harder? Are you just taking the Lord and His Word for granted? Or is your heart still soft, pliable, eager when it comes to the Lord and His truth? Now, that, that's the exhortation for those who know Christ. But surely in a crowd this size, there are some who don't know Christ. And I urge you, give your life to Christ today. Don't harden your heart. Don't push it off and eventually reach the point of no return. Because that can happen. You can be so familiar, you've heard it so many times, but I'll do that later, I'll think about it later. You just keep postponing, saying, no, not now. And your heart gets unreachable. Yield to Christ today. Father, when we read this story, not only this one, but when we go back to Luke 4 and see our Lord's first visit to Nazareth in his public ministry, and then this final one, we can understand why Mark says that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this. It's, it's hard for us to, to grasp this. That these people would become so familiar with Jesus that they just come to the conclusion there's nothing special about him, nothing unique. He's just ordinary guy. How scandalous of him to claim to be more. And Father, we, we don't want to leave this as mere history, looking back and shaking our heads or clucking our tongues. But we want to see what we need to pull from this for our own lives, what we need to take from it, what we need to recognize, tendencies in our own hearts and our own lives. And so I pray, Father, for those gathered here today who are your people, who do know Jesus Christ, and especially those who have known him for some length of time. Father, protect our hearts. Keep us from allowing familiarity to breed contempt. Keep us from taking him and his truth, his word, for granted. And Father, for those who are present here with us this morning who do not know your son, Jesus Christ, who have never surrendered to him, but they know about him. Maybe they've heard about him many times before in the past, but for whatever reason, always said, no, no, I'm not going to yield. I'm not going to surrender. I'm not going to turn to Christ with all my heart. Father, break through. Please break through to them so that today they would no longer reject, no longer postpone, but today they would yield their lives to Jesus Christ and come to know him.
Father, take the, this passage that we have examined this morning and all of the uh, texts we have looked at from your word, use those in our hearts and lives, not only today, but in the days to come. We pray that you would push them deep into our hearts so that we would not forget them, not forget the lessons we need to learn from them, but that your truth would bear fruit in our hearts and lives, not only today, but in the days to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name and ultimately for his sake, his glory. Amen.